Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey everyone, it's Anthony Cazenza with the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Hope you are well and in, and you are enjoying the rest of your week. Um, we're coming at you live on our YouTube channel. Normally we come at you live on our YouTube channel and the Cincy Jungle Facebook page. Last week we experienced a little bit of audio issues that we felt were because we were simultaneously streaming. So we're going we're gonna to work the kinks out on that. We will be doing that going forward but uh, for today and this week's episode we're only going live on our YouTube channel and as always I'm uh, I'm joined by Randall is is would he go by Randall Sheeran will will he have a Sheeran last name or I don't know I kind of adopted him and he's not I guess technically a Sheeran because he isn't te- he doesn't technically belong to me I'm just kind of holding on to him from now but he's, he's like an honorary Sheeran he's almost like an honorary Kazenza too okay so he, he, you can be like in the both, oh, both hy- hyphenated, hyphenated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sheeran first, uh, first. Yeah, there you go. Of course, the the real Sheeran, the real deal. John Sheeran is with it. John, how you holding up this week, buddy? You uh, you took some lumps from some <laughs> some keyboard warriors, some Twitter tough guys. How you holding up, buddy? Just real quick, I like how we always talk about Randall the skeleton, and like there's people who just don't watch the YouTube show and have no idea there's a skeleton behind me. But I I'm doing fine, you know. Like the Bengals stink. And people are mad, and that's kind of how it goes with an 0-7 team. But it's all about perspective, man. Like life is still good, even if the team sucks. Life is fine. Um, I can't, I can't complain. Yeah, unfortunately, in our position, when you know we don't play for the team and we don't work in the front office of this team, uh, and we kind of, it's kind of a shoot the messenger thing, you know. And and you and I, we report news, but we also give a lot of opinion in our writings and on this show and all of that. So, uh, and Bengals fans are testy and for, for good reason, Owen seven to start the season, Bengals fans are testy and they, a lot of times like to like to kill the messenger. So uh, we'll give you probably a little bit of a chance to talk about um, to clear your name, I guess, if you want to do that towards the end of the episode, but tonight we're going to talk a ton about quarterbacks and Normally, we don't like to, t- to engage too much in the Andy Dalton discussion or whatever, but right now, he appears to be at a career crossroads with the team, especially with his performance against the Jacksonville Jaguars. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the options currently on the Bengals bench and if they should give those guys a look. We've also been asked by a number of viewers about the guys coming in uh, in, in the next NFL draft class in, in 2020, which guys do we prefer, why, and which might there be a different route than taking a quarterback top one, two, three, four, five, you know, in, in the draft? Might there be a different plan in place that could be just as, if not more effective for the team going forward next year? And then, of course, we will, because the Bengals are, 
in London across the pond. We will be joined by Joe McAtee of Turf Show Times, the SB Nation's Ram site. Very stoked to have him on. Um, talk about, of course, we'll talk about the game, but really curious, John, to get his insight on Zach Taylor, his insight on Jared Goff and, and the way he's been operating in Sean McVay's system, uh, all kinds of different things. I'm pretty excited about that interview. I, I hope you are as well. I don't want to talk about Andrew Woolworth, but I think I'm going to have to ask him a question about it. I'm just going to of hold course. back the tears. <laughs> of course, of course, big number 77. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll talk about that. We will be having another listener question show uh, on Friday afternoon. So join us for that. Unfortunately, tonight we tried to get uh, some members of Bengals UK. Some of you follow their accounts on Twitter and whatnot. We tried to get them on tonight, but because of the time difference, it just didn't work. But Friday, we're going to get talk to them as they are live in one of the English pubs. They're going to talk about the sights and sounds with the games. They're going to join us. Pretty excited about that. They're also going to be talking with like Dave Lapham and Lance McAllister, and they're making time for us too. So pretty excited about that. So you'll want to join us Friday and or download that listener question slash Rams preview episode as well. Well, let's... I guess dive into what happened this last Sunday. I mean, we could talk about a number of different facets, John, the lack of a run game, the dry spells on offense, the lack of a run defense, but the spotlights on the quarterback and Mm -hmm. the Bengals into the fourth quarter were down 17 to 10. And in the fourth quarter, Andy Dalton threw three interceptions on three straight drives. These interceptions, the first one was in the red zone. The second one was, uh, was it a pick six? Basically, there was a pick six off a screen. Right, right. And then another one yielded no points. But, I mean, that essentially, those three picks could have, you could view them as a 17-point swing should the Bengals have scored a touchdown on the one that he threw in the end zone? And then obviously the pick six, one turned into some points. So three straight interceptions, not a good look for him, especially when some fans were already calling for his head. So before this game, the Bengals were 0-6 and 0-3 and in close games. And for what this roster is right now, extremely beaten up, very weak in a lot of spots. They've more or less been in some of these games that they had no business to being in. And unfortunately, for the entire season, the quarterback position has been outplayed in regards to the Bengals side. This game was basically no different. You know, going into the fourth quarter, the Gardner Minshew and that passing offense was doing nothing out of the ordinary. For the first time in a while, the Bengals defense looked pretty stout for most of the game and kept them in the game. And that's kind of been also an- another theme going on while the offense is sputtering and has no sense of consistency and identity. The Bengals defense has been doing everything in their power to fight for the 35, 40 minutes on average, the amount of time that they're on the field. And this game was a lot of a lot of the same of that. They gave up another 200 yards rushing just because the Jags, you know, have those bodies on the offensive line, and they have a guy in Leonard Fournette who runs for about 100 yards after contact every single game. None of that is any different. But the Jags didn't have a, a lethal passing game like they had early part in the season, and they just kept the Bengals in this game. And up until the fourth quarter, they were down by a touchdown, and you know, Dalton was struggling this entire game to find any consistency. He was only really succeeding in targeting Alex Erickson of all people. It was kind of like a rotation of which receiver in this offense has the, has its turn to step up. And apparently Tyler Boyd, Auden Tate, and Alex Erickson can't all have a decent game all together in the same week. 
but it was Erickson's game to shine and he did well and Dalton did well targeting him and Dalton did have some good throws to his name but man again for, for the fourth time really this season it was just a game that came down to the last quarter and it just ended up with Dalton just falling under pressure just failing to step up when they needed him the most and this game doesn't technically count as a one score loss because they lost by I think 10 but this game was just as close as the other close games that they lost and for the same reason that they lost they lost because of the quarterback position and even when you have a team that has literally barely had an active roster that was healthy enough to play in this game and injuries at multitude of starting positions including his number one receiver aj green this team for some for whatever reason is still being around late in these games and they can't count on the most important position to put it away so we will talk more about andy dalton in just a second and the quarterback stuff i kind of want to deviate just for a quick second because you talked about the the fact that the Bengals have been in these games and you know inexplicably the point differential is so I in in my winners and losers column that I put up after the game I actually had Lou Anarumo as a winner and I put him in as a winner because this team had been you know they were in the game they started the game with a goal line stand and I think three straight punts is what they were the first four drives by the Jaguars competent offenses you take advantage of that and you at least get a field goal two field goals 10 points out of something like that um you know and on top of that when the Bengals weren't moving the ball they were then pinning the Jaguars deep the Jaguars punted back gave the Bengals decent field position and they just weren't moving the ball so I guess some fans didn't agree with the sentiment that Lou Anarumo, I guess, was a winner. I still kind of stand behind that because there are probably four or five games of these seven losses where either they're one possession games or really, I think only a couple of those games they've let up in the 40s or huge amount of points. It's really been manageable, one possession, 10 point type of games. And in this game, Dalton throws the three picks in the fourth quarter that absolutely blows up in their face. I think the defense, despite all their deficiencies, did enough to at least keep the Bengals, give them the ability to win. Yeah, like, Terry Narumas, like, let's just not blow to the proportions. He's not doing the greatest job as, as a defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of definite deficiencies that he could definitely improve upon. With that said, going back, I think it was the first time we noticed this in the Buffalo game, where, like, the defense kind of broke down towards the end, and you realize they've been on the field for 40 minutes. And that yep. was the same thing with the Arizona Cardinals game, the Baltimore Ravens game, and now with the Jacksonville Jaguars game. A lot of those offenses had exotic running games that they just don't have the personnel to counter. And that's why they gave up over 250 rushing yards in three separate contests in this game. That's that, that that's still what it is at this point. It's all relative to what he has to work with right now. And and the, that defense is, is very battered at the moment. They don't have a lot of athleticism in the neatest spots that they do. But they only gave up, I think, what, this is with that pick, they only gave up technically like 20 points in this game. And they're not giving up a ton of points. And in, in the red zone, you know, they're, they're doing a decent job there as well. I think they have like the fourth best red zone defense in the league, which is very much overshadowed by the fact that they have, I would assume, would be a bottom five red zone offense. So I guess the two kind of counter out each other and, and they, they fail to take advantage of the good red zone defense. But like you said, it's all relative to what they have to, to work with and how really bad the offense is his defense is performing better than the offense right now. And our own Matt Minich, who does the chalk talk uh, podcast for the orange for this channel. He, um, you know, wrote an article this week about this defense is good enough to win games. If they had that competent offense, and it doesn't take, it doesn't take much out of this. They don't have to be the 49ers on the, on offense. They don't have to be the chiefs on offense. They just need to be able to put together some drives to take advantage of 
some crucial stops that this defense manages to get. They play their they play their they, they play their ass off. I'm just gonna say they play their ass off. They play their hearts out for the lack of depth they have the defensive line, the lack of talent they have at linebacker. They do they they overachieve right now, and that's very much lost. And I know we get all lost in the the whole volume yardage that they give up, but situational basis per play basis, they're doing all right for what they have. Right, no Carl Lawson, no Carlos Dunlap, no Kerry Wynn, no William Jackson, no Drake Kirkpatrick. I mean, there's a, it's a lot of starters and, and role players there who were not in the game, and they still did a – in my opinion, they did a, a, enough to give the Bengals an opportunity to win, and I, I think that's kind of where I'm and, – and to your point, you know, the time of possession is completely lopsided. Some would look at that and say, well, that's because they're letting up all of these rushing yards and these teams are sustaining drives. I see it as they're on the field a ton because the offense keeps putting them back out on the field and the, the play disparities there because of that. So, um, you know, I, I just wanted to bring that point up, but going back to Dalton now to me, three, three interceptions. You're now, you know, this game's kind of out of reach. I would have probably put one of those young guys in. I mean, is, is it time that this team now is it time? Is should Andy Dalton be be sitting on the bench, or is it now? Hey, we're getting guys. You know, whether it's AJ Green, whether it's maybe Dunlap and Lawson, and all these guys, we're starting to kind of get guys back now. Maybe let's see what he has with some of these players back on the field. I think uh, I'm still in the mindset that this team needs to be in full evaluation mode, and I think from our perspective, if they put out one of the two backup quarterbacks in there, they're basically saying, yeah. We're at DEFCON 1. This season's over. We're just going through the entire roster right now to see what we have. At the quarterback spot, I want the guy that gives them the best chance to evaluate the rest of the talent on offense. And if they feel that Andy Dolan is the guy to do that, to evaluate the receivers, the offensive line play, go ahead and put him out there. Obviously, he's better in the draft position right now with the way he's playing. If they put Ryan Finley out there, I don't think it's a move as a sign for them to get better results because I don't think that they feel like Finley's a better quarterback. And I don't think that we should feel that Finley would generate better results because he is a rookie and he does have deficiencies to his own name. Yes. He has some strengths relative to Dalton's game right now, specifically with pocket presence and all those other stuff that us armchair scouts can, can look at. But with Finley and Dolagala, they both have traits that we would like to see in an actual game to see how well they translated from the preseason and from the college game for that matter, all the way to the NFL I think throwing him out there against the Rams defense, either of them against the Rams defense is basically a, a lose-lose situation. Now, obviously, Dalton's going to get beaten up regardless behind this offense line against that defense, and we'll talk more about that later. But I feel like in this specific week, go, going to London against one of the better defensive lines is probably a scenario for disaster to get to start any rookie for their first start out there. So I think if something like this does happen, it happens after the bye week, maybe not immediately, but you know, if things continue to worsen after that bye week, when they have more time to evaluate the situation, yeah, maybe we can see something like that. But I don't think it's a move to really spark the locker room and spark some type of late season push or whatever, or establish some type of, of winning mentality here. I think if they do that, it's just a sign that, Hey, we're just giving up the season where, and we're seeing where, where we, where we are with the quarterback position now, because more, more likely than not, we're going to address it in, in next April. I, I like your sentiment about, you know, maybe now isn't the time given the travel and the, the opponent and a bye week coming up. And, and usually if you are teams, if they make a quarterback change, it's usually around a bye week so that that quarterback gets an entire, you know, an expanded amount of time to run with the ones to get the playbook, to really grasp a lot of things. So that I, I think makes sense. But 
to your evaluation point, I, I understand where you're coming from with, you know, if Andy Dalton gives them the opportunity to properly evaluate other players, then that's the, that's what needs to happen. But some of the players that need evaluation are these quarterbacks that are on the bench. Is Ryan right. Finley going to be any, at any point, a viable starter, if, even if it's a stopgap starter for Andy Dalton getting injured or another quarterback they bring in getting injured, you moved up, you liked him. You were the only quarterback that this team brought in in the pre-draft process for a visit. So obviously they like you. Um, uh, to me, you may want to see what what this season's done. I mean, I I, I hate to t- say that. Um, and oh, and seven. Like, I, no I, well, I mean, I don't for our for our ratings purposes and our and our view viewings purposes, I guess. Uh, you know, no. I, I mean, this season's it's lost. I mean, it's it's done and. And to that point, I kind of would like to see a guy like Finley. Now, I had someone tweet at me today asking about Jake Dolagala. Maybe he's an even better option than Finley because he's got the stronger arm. He's kind of the prototypical build. He can avoid the sacks. My thing is, is whether it's Finley or Dolagala, if you bring him in, you have to kind of temper the expectations because what you saw in preseason was against guys that are either on practice squads, aren't on teams, or are fringe roster guys. That's who they were playing against. So, um, you know, you can't expect them to come in there and Ryan Finley, who was one of the best passers in the preseason, if he is to get a start, I think you need to temper the expectations. But like you, John, I think these next couple of weeks, you really have to kind of think about evaluating one of these guys and giving them the opportunity because it seems that the Andy Dalton era is over. And and once you throw out Finley or in some bizarre case Dolagal out there, you would have to admit that the Andy Dalton era is over. Like, there's no way you can convince the fan base that yeah, we're sticking with Dalton and we're not going to draft a quarterback. That that that's just throwing blind smoke in there. Like, if that move is made, you know for a fact that they're targeting a quarterback early in the draft and they're targeting his replacement. And then it comes down to the fact if they're even going to keep him on the roster in 2020 or if they're going to let him play out his contract, whatever. But if things are going the way this, if things are going the way they're trajecting right now. It's not looking good for number 14. It's not. Um, I, I would I would like to see these guys, though, behind. I, I don't know if I'd want to see them behind this offensive line, per se. But I would like to see a Ryan Finley behind a starting offensive line, a Jake Dolagala behind a starting offensive line with maybe some other guys, maybe an A.J. Green out there to kind of see, you know, hey, this is there are some starting caliber players around this guy maybe see what they're able to do. I was impressed with Dolagala, but that let's let's not make a mistake. That is a project guy. He has a lot of work to do. There's a reason why he was a small school guy. There was a reason why he was undrafted. He's got there was a lot of work to be done there. But sometimes those guys, the best work that they can get and how they end up developing is in games. So um to me, I, I think I think like you, the timing going maybe into a bye week, especially dependent upon what happens this week. I think going into the bye week, that's maybe when you look at, hey, let's give one of these guys a shot. Exactly. And and, and, and even, even to then, like, my, my whole thing is that the, the this offensive line struggles right now. Like, a lot of it has been, like, blaming on the pass protection. And I think week four really amplified that when they gave up eight sacks. But over the past three weeks, They've only given up a handful of sacks. They're definitely a lot better relative to how they started the year. And unfortunately, the passing game is not picked up in terms of efficiency. So it kind of goes back to, I think, pro football, pro football focus 
did a data study about if quarterback pressures are more of a QB stat or offensive line stat. And they found that on average, it's more of a QB stat. And it's more of how a quarterback manages the pocket. And if he's the one who causes, you know, pressures, mm. and you know, how these pressures form, or whatever, and it's, it's more on him than the offensive line. So I think in, in terms of Finley, you could therefore evaluate how good or bad the pass protection really is on the offensive line. If Dolan himself and his quick release, which a lot of people say that, you know, he, he has that makes the off- offensive line better. If you put out Finley in there, how much does he quote unquote elevate the offensive line and make them look a little bit better? There's another, you know, wrinkle to the whole evaluation process. That's not only evaluating your receivers and how they fare with the quarterback, but also with the offensive line and how their, you know, overall production and performance measures up against the quarterback that may handle pressure a little bit better and doesn't cause pressure on onto himself, because that's always been the main thing that, that Andy Dolan has struggled with. And, even past then, like the other, the other thing you have to look at is, you know, how a quarterback is able to create out a structure and how he's able to extend plays. And that's definitely not something that Dalton does well. And it wasn't something that Finley did well out of college either. So uh, I think getting those two things, at least some sense on film this year, it would be nice for the Bengals to have to see if they w- would continue to further invest in Finley beyond 2020 and beyond that as either a backup or a potential, like you said, spot starter. But that would be the only two concerns I would have right now. Right. And you, we've got a couple of people talking in the, in the YouTube chat. Uh, Dustin Lenz, who I believe also was the, the gentleman who, who tweeted at me about Dola Gala specifically. Um, Rob Duncan, Dylan Burke, they're kind of saying, we don't want to throw Finley in there, get, you know, have him kind of hear footsteps so early in his career or what have you. Well, I understand the sentiment, but your starting quarterback is already showing those signs. So he's, he's sensing pressure that, isn't necessarily there a lot of times and isn't handling the pressure very well. And I mean, you need to, you need to kind of see how these players do handle NFL pressure. And if they're able to manage the pocket to your point about the PFF stats, sacks and pressures kind of being more, a little bit more on the quarterback fault side. Um, You know, I, again, you don't want to go and throw someone out there and Hey, you know, go get hurt, obviously, but you draft these guys for a reason. You bring them in for a reason. You're 0-7. Your team's not doing anything on offense. I don't know. I, I'm kind of I'm kind of at the point like, why not? Exactly. What, I mean, what do you What do you really have to lose at this point? Like, if you draft a quarterback and don't want to throw him into um, any slightly uncomfortable scenario, then that quarterback is re- essentially useless. You're essentially labeling him as a backup that can only come in in a perfect scenario, and essentially you're giving him the Andy Dolan treatment where he can't be expected to, to do good unless he has the perfect offense line, the perfect supporting cast. You need to see how these guys perform under unperfect circumstances, yep. and there's no better situation than right now. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> imperfect circumstances should be the, uh, the the team motto for the 2019 Bengals. That is that is for sure on their crest. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sharon. I'm Anthony Cazenza. We're talking about the Bengals' loss to the Jaguars as well as the quarterback situation, the current state of the quarterback situation with the Bengals after Andy Dalton threw three interceptions against Jacksonville. We're going to talk in just a second about some of the college prospects coming up and some strategies with the 2020 draft as it pertains to the quarterback position. We'll also be bringing in Joe McAtee from Turf Showtimes, the SB Nation Ram site to help preview this week in London and talk about some other things given the relationship between the two franchises. If you're new to this show, you can get all of our stuff. And as John mentioned earlier, Matt Minich's Chalk Talk 
uh, it's a film review, so kind of a neat thing. That's on our YouTube channel. But that and this show and a number of other episodes are on our SB Nation Cincy Jungle podcast channel. So subscribe to that. Get your podcast, how, however you may do that, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, all that good stuff. Get it there, and all of our stuff is on cincyjungle.com, along with news, opinions, analysis, all that good stuff on the website there. So check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. John, the other part we've been hearing a lot about, obviously, is, okay, the big four or five quarterbacks coming out in this year's draft. The Bengals have currently kind of held the the number one overall pick. They're jockeying with, you know, the Redskins and the Dolphins and um, all all that good stuff. They've had it, basically, the number one overall pick for a while. It was Tua, Tua, Tua. Um, For In recent weeks, it's been more Joe Burrow. Um, we've been asked, at least I've been asked quite a bit, who's, who's your guy and why? Um, so we'll start with that portion of the question. And obviously we're looking at probably the big five, Joe Burrow of LSU. You're looking at Tua from, from Alabama. You're looking at Justin Herbert of Oregon. You're looking at, uh, Eason out of, out of Washington. And probably Jake Fromm is maybe in that conversation as well. Not, not maybe top five, but, um, in terms of a, a high round quarterback those are kind of the five names being kicked out there it's early we have half a season plus yet to play but as you sit here today in mid to late october um do you have a a favorite and and what tools or what reasoning do you use in order to come to that conclusion so there's no just like last year and maybe even the year before that there's no real slam dunk number one right now and that's I guess a rare thing. Like there's never going to, there's not always going to be an Andrew Luck type prospect in every draft or anything like that. And there's never going to be, you know, there might not ever be like a Marcus Mariota, Jameis Winston type one, two combo at the top. But I think if Joe Burrow continues to play like this right now, it's really hard to dispute him not being the best overall. And he's definitely playing the best. He's got the best metrics in terms of deep passing, play action passing in terms of just being an LSU quarterback, he's setting records like middle of the season, which is really unheard of. And I think really bodes well for him as well, but it, it, it just, it, it's so in- incredible to, to think that this guy was a backup at OSU and, and couldn't beat Dwayne Haskins and JT Bear as a starter. And then even when he was a, a transfer starter last year at LSU, he was pretty much a pedestrian starter. And then in his last year, in his last year, he just manages to flick a switch and turn it on and look like a per- almost a perfect quarterback in a lot of, in a lot of the ways, you know, he can obviously, He's a great, you know, pocket manager, and he's able to identify different coverages and different levels of the field, and he's able to maneuver in the pocket and, and you know, manipulate defenses and make accurate throws all over the field. Like we, like, like I just mentioned, one of the best, if not the best, deep ball thrower in this class. And really, it, it's it's not like he has like a live arm, anyways. It's almost like when you watch him, he's kind of like has has a release and velocity of, of like a Carson Palmer or Ben Roethlisberger, where it's not lightning quick and the ball doesn't have a lot of pop to it, but it gets to where it needs to go. And somehow it managed to get there when it needs to be there and in the perfect spot. So great accuracy all over the field, 
The one area that I want to see more of as we go on and as he plays even tougher defenses late into the SEC schedule is how he can operate out of structure. Like how can he make throws on the run? How can he extend plays? Is he able to continue keeping his eyes downfield? And those are traits that he's shown promise of to start. But again, this is still not technically a one-year starter, but a, a, a two-year starter that really has right now just a half year of great play and the other year was obviously mediocre. So right now I think Burrow is playing the best and it's hard to really argue against him, even though there are other quarterbacks, I know you're about to mention one, that might have more flashier traits that might benefit him in an offense where he's not going to get perfect protection. He's not going to get receivers who can separate all the time. So you know maybe, maybe you don't necessarily knock him on that, but you think, okay, maybe there are other quarterbacks that could – potentially have a higher upside or make more of the situation that he could be presented in Cincinnati. But right now I think Burrow is the safe number one for me. Okay. And, and keep in mind, I mean, I, probably the, the person I'm going to talk about, I'll get a lot of hate on this. Uh, my baby in the YouTube chat, Joe Burrow equals Mitchell Trubisky. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that one, but there's not really a wrong answer here as we sit here in, in talking about this. We've been asked about our preferences. We see, we've, seen what we've seen on film. We're going to watch more, especially during the offseason. And as these players have an entire season's worth of film or multiple seasons worth of film. So uh, I, I like what I've seen to, to your point about Burrow. I like what I've seen from him. I, I worry what you prefaced your statement with the one year wonder thing. You know, like you said, he had trouble getting past some of these guys to get a starting job. He had to transfer somewhere else to get a, a job. And then all of a sudden looks outstanding. Is that a system thing? Is that just, you know, he didn't get a proper look and, you know, so, sometimes guys just get overlooked and Tom Brady is an example, right? I mean, he, he, and uh, who was, who was the one guy drew Henson, right? In, in Michigan, we're kind of vying for playing time there and Brady was kind of overlooked. And then, you know, we all know what happened there. So the, weird things happen to, to guys in college and um, that's, it just happens. But uh, to me, the one-year wonder thing scares me a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that's going to be the big knock on him coming out going forward. Now, for those who follow me on Twitter and uh, you know know of where I live, um, I, I'm partial to the kid in Oregon, Herbert. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons why. Uh, you know, I look at – I'm looking at his stats – Yardage wise, his first two years, not not great because he didn't throw the ball a ton, but completion percentage in the mid to high 60s. Last year, if he were to come out after 2018, a lot of people thought he would be the top guy off the board. Um, His completion percentage dipped under 60, which was alarming. Um, And credit to him. I think he either heard or felt on his own that he had some things to work on uh, in order to be a better quarterback, be a professional quarterback. And, and the Oregon team is, is pretty good as it is. Um, so, you know, maybe he thought he had a, a shot at a, at a good run with the Ducks this year. But, uh, I mean, now he's, he's had the highest completion percentage. Granted, he's got more games to play. But highest completion percentage, again, at 68.1. He's thrown one interception. Every year, single-digit interceptions, um, you know, 19 touchdowns, four interceptions, and 16, 15 touchdowns, five interceptions, and 17, 29 touchdowns, eight interceptions last year. He's already at 21 touchdowns and just one interception this year and his highest rating. Um, I see a guy that can make a lot of throws. 
I see a guy that's got prototypical size and athleticism. And if you're, if I'm going to lean on someone else's opinion about the kid, uh, I recently saw a video of Greg Cosell, a very respect, well-respected quarterback film guy, NFL film guy, um, kind of said that he is a scheme versatile quarterback and specifically he would be probably the best fit in the Bengals system in a Rams type Rams style offense, a Zach Taylor offense. Um, so for me, I think that that kid is, is probably my favorite. I'm not saying by a lot, um, but I, I see plays that are made uh, that not a lot of players make. Uh, and, and to me, that's the guy that I think the Bengals should look very heavily at. Um, especially if they're not the number one overall pick, you know, there might be, uh, guys might go in front of them, but I think that that guy is, I think he could very well end up being the best of the bunch based on the tools you have to work with. I think there's maybe a little bit more work and grooming that need to go with him as he enters the pros. Maybe Burrow is more ready tomorrow than Herbert is, but I think that this is a guy that can make all the throws. I think he's a guy that can maneuver the pocket relatively well. Um, And I think unlike a Tua, he's got less to work with. If you go back a couple of weeks ago and you watch the game where they absolutely dismantled Colorado, uh, Justin Herbert could have probably had four or five touchdown passes in that game. Instead, I think he had two because players around him were dropping absolute dimes in the end zone that he threw to them. Uh, so some of these stats I threw out to you earlier may be a little skewed because of a lack of surrounding talent with him. So to me, those are kind of the arguments as to why I like Justin Herbert. Yeah, I think that the last game that Herbert played against Washington is a tape that I think you and I are going to watch a lot over, this, over the course of this offseason because it was, it was my first time watching not only Herbert in depth, but also Jacob Easton, who he was going up against. And yeah. I, I personally like... I was, you know, again, I was introduced a little bit to Easton, but I was, I personally like a lot of the things that I think people like about Herbert and how he has a live arm and how he's able to manage to, you know, generate a lot of touch on some of these deep balls and manage to have perfect placement, but also have a lot of velocity with those throws. So like, like you said, Herbert, his main positive is obviously he, he can place the ball all over the field. But I think right now you're looking for a quarterback that not only can operate out of structure and not only make, you know, make yeah. throws under. On, on, in perfect circumstances, but also combine that with the ability to move an offense consistently. And I think that's definitely the, the thing that Herbert has to work on the most because you said like you know, those accuracy issues popped up last year and he's still kind of working through those things. And he's probably the most erratic out of these top quarterbacks. Yeah. I think that's definitely the, the one knock on him. And I guess you can point to Easton as well. So it really is finding that quarterback that has the best combination of efficiency on a per play basis, but also has the components to really break open a game and make these plays now that every quarterback can make. And I guess that's why before the season, I think Tua was everyone's top quarterback in that sense, because, you know, even playing in a stacked offense in Alabama, he was still able to, you know, flash and showcase and display all these, you know, transitional uh, talents and elements of a pocket passer, but also have an arm that can, you know, put the ball over all over the field and very quickly while doing it. The reason why Tua wasn't my QB one right now is because, I think you do have to kind of worry about those durability issues because he played injured a lot last year, even though he played all 15 games and now he's dealing with an ankle injury. And it's not because he, you know, he tends to escape the pocket every, every once in a while. And it's not because he's that small. It's just because it's, it's just kind of what it is right now. And he's, he's going through a lot of injury concerns. This is something that 
I think the Bengals and every other team is going to have to focus on, okay, can we trust this guy to stay healthy for most of the time? Because if you're investing into a quarterback and with one of the first two picks, that's definitely the biggest, you know, uh, concern that you have is, can you rely on this guy to play? And, you know, from a talent perspective and from a consistency perspective and over the course of now two and a half years or whatever, you would, you love the, the, you know, the production and, and the tape that two has shown, but I think it's just the one red flag for me that has him right below Burrow right now. But, you know, guys like Herbert and Easton have those elements that make me say, wow, I, I really wish I had that in my quarterback. It's just about managing their consistency and getting them on, on pace to, you know, manage an offense for the course of four quarters. Yeah. Uh, my, my, you know, I kind of adopt some parts of, uh, you know, the old Bill Parcells, how to evaluate a college quarterback thing. You know, I look at the, the, the chasm between, you know, the differential between t- touchdowns, and interceptions. I look at the, uh, you know, I look at completion percentage and then obviously, you know, wins and other things like that are, are part of it too. So, um, you know, you, there's kind of a little formula that, that he used in terms of, evaluating college quarterbacks I take some of that into stock when I look at some of these guys and obviously competition surrounding talent all that kind of stuff the one dark horse that we didn't talk about really was Jalen Hurts um yes you know a guy that that was kind of forgot about because he got benched for Tua uh he had as a I believe a true freshman a great you know great year he came in Sparked them, I think won a national championship for them and then got benched for Tua. Now he's in Oklahoma, probably going to win the Heisman this year. So this, he's a dark horse guy. And it, it brings up the second part of our of our conversation here because we don't know exactly where he's going to go in terms of, of draft stock. He could be a guy that's maybe a late one, mid one, early two, if if teams hold off on quarterbacks. So I've been ta- I've been asked about this one a lot too. You look back to when the Bengals needed a full rebuild in 2011. What did they do? You know, they get they had just got rid of T.O. and they traded Chad Johnson away. So they needed a wide receiver. Well, the safest and best, the safest pick of the draft and arguably the best player in the draft uh, at the time was A.J. Green. Now, granted, that ended up being an absolutely loaded draft class. But A.J. Green, and he ended up being truly a, a very safe pick. Uh, They went wide receiver first, and then they got their quarterback in Andy Dalton at the early second round. Um, We know what that led to, five straight postseason berths. They built a team around those two guys, and they were able to carry the baton from the Carson Palmer era. Now, is there – I think we all want the generational talent, which probably there's one or two, if not more, between the names we listed of Burrow, Herbert, Tua, all those guys. But could there be – as sage of a strategy or even a a wiser strategy in, you know what, get another offensive lineman early and then top of the second or trade back toward the top of the first and get, if a guy like Jalen Hurts is there, get a from, get an Eason and work that work it that way. So what the Bengals did in 2011, like, they, they, they watched Cam Newton get taken first overall, and they watched Von Miller get taken second overall. I'm thinking, okay, and they're thinking, yeah, like we knew those two guys were going to be gone. We're going to take the, the top guy on our board and AJ Green. And there was obviously no problem with that because their evaluations on the other quarterbacks they're taking the first round, Lane Gabbard, um, Jake Locker, Christian Ponder, they're pretty damn accurate if they're going to take Green over those guys. So when you're at the top of the first round, it's not a hundred percent take a quarterback, but it's pretty damn close. As long as you have the right guy to take there, 
when when you're talking about the Bengals this year, and they're probably gonna be drafting no worse than like like the third overall pick, right? If if there is the quarterback that they feel confident that can be the guy to take over for Andy Dalton, they cannot pass up on it. And I'm and I'm basically going back to a couple weeks ago when I'm saying if you're drafting them in the top five and you're this bad, and the reason why you're this bad is, is because your quarterback play is shoddy, you pretty much have to take a quarterback. If there isn't a quarterback there compared to a guy like Chase Young, the, the defensive end from Ohio State, or an Andrew Thomas, the offensive tackle from uh, Georgia, then you probably you, you would take the safer prospect out of position of need. That that saying, if you feel like guys like, I don't know, Burrow or Herbert or Easton in this case are those locker, ponder, and Blaine Gabbard types. I'm, right, at this point right now, I think those quarterbacks this year are safer than those guys and probably are yeah. better chance to pan out even if the guys like Young and Thomas are extremely enticing. But when you're dealing with the situation now, when you have complete uncertainty at the quarterback position and you have guys who you would figure to be not safe, but better overall quality type quarterbacks, you would basically force your hand to take the quarterback in that situation because you're probably not going to have this opportunity again if you expect to be competitive in the near future, if you expect to be healthier going forward, because you just can't count on continuing to draft in the top five, even when you're as bad as the Bengals are right now. So if the right quarterback is there in your mind and you're in the position to take him, you basically take the quarterback and worry about the rest later. So I know it makes for more dramatic podcasting or, or radio for us to sit here and, you know, butt heads and, and argue the point. Normally I'd, I'd put up a little bit more of a fight, but I think the scenarios and I didn't add this maybe intentionally when I first brought up this question, the scenarios in, in where the Bengals are in terms of the state of the franchise are different. They were kind of, they had a head coach who had already rebuilt the team once or twice at that point. And they knew that that head coach had a philosophy of, well, we can get a pretty good quarterback, make sure we get surrounding talent and build the team up that way. This is now a still a new regime where this the, the quarterback that this head coach inherited may or may not have been the guy that he wanted. Uh, so I think to your point, John, if, if a guy is there, and to be quite honest, Taylor may be feeling some heat of, you know, if, if this is a if this is a year that's three and thirteen or worse, he's got to win games and he's got, mm-hmm. he's got to find a guy that's going to win him games. Uh, otherwise he's going to be out of a job and he may not get another head co- chance at a head coaching job for quite a while if things don't turn around. So I think if the scenarios were a little different, maybe you could then emulate what happened in 2011. But I think because a young head coach, because he's an offensive minded guy, because Dalton may or may not be his quarterback that he wanted. I think if there is a guy that he truly covets up there, that that is the way that, that to go, especially if there is a guy, like you said, that they view as the guy. That's honestly a great point. And to your point, he's got to, he's got to find a way to win games. The Bengals have to find a way to put butts in seats right now. They're like last in percentage attendance <laughs> yeah. seven weeks and the losing is definitely not helping that. So if you go into this next draft and you're not committed to Andy Dalton beyond 2020 and you're sitting at the top of the first round and you don't take a quarterback, there's going to be a lot of uproar. Even if you take 
an elite prospect like Chase Young or Andrew Thomas again. But there is, I would say, a section of Bengals fans who are thinking, oh, what if he's going to be Dave Klinger again? What if he's going to be Akili Smith? And you, you'll have those fans to back you up and say, yeah, take the safe prospect. But again, like I think you made a great point of how, how Marvin was in a di- very different spot in his career and how they had a little bit more of a plan to to, to attack that, I guess, revival of 2011 and how this is compl- uh, pretty much a completely different scenario. Because even if they aren't technically rebuilding, because if they were, they would probably be trading some assets by now, they're, they're in a spot where they really need to restart everything. And that all begins at the quarterback's position because Andy Dalton in 2020 should be the last year of his of his time in Cincinnati and you need to find a way to look forward. And there's no better time to do that than when you're picking in the top three. I mean, there, there are examples of team, you know, people will point at the 49ers. They did it a different way. They, they traded for a guy that was originally drafted in the second round in Garoppolo and they've built a team that's now what, six and oh, seven and oh, six and oh, I think. So, um, you know, there's going to, there are anomalies, but you know, that's also a team that just swung a trade for Emmanuel Sanders. That's a team who's done things in free agency, whereas the Bengals are not really that team. So they need to get and hit on guys in the draft. So, um, you know, I, to, to me, I think, uh, I, I think it's gotta be a quarterback and, you know, we, we talk about the quarterback change. We kind of sound like we dog on Andy Dalton, and I kind of throw this disclaimer out somewhat often. I mean, this isn't a – It's not personal. It's not. It's really not. And I think most fans, based on who Andy Dalton is as a person and what they've seen from him on the field at times, I think they would love to see him succeed. They would love to see it work for him. But it's just not. It's not. And uh, so – that's that's the reality of the situation. We're going to be joined here by uh, Joe McAtee of Turf Show Times. So uh, let's bring him on the air. Is this uh, is this Joe? Hey, what's going on, man? Hey, Joe, what's going on? You're talking with Anthony Cazenza and John Sheeran of the Orange and Black Insider. How you doing, bud? Well, we're we're getting. I mean, I think you're probably a little bit more excited about the football season than we are at this point. Um, we we obviously are for the Bengals being zero and seven. This week's a little more exciting than many other weeks coming up because they're playing in London and it's a little bit different. And then, of course, the relationship between the two teams. Um, I, I guess we'll just kind of kick it off with a question about kind of how. How do you feel the Rams have been looking in general? I mean, it seems like a very up and down season. They obviously traded for Jalen Ramsey and had a good result this past week. But um, is there is there a sense of a Super Bowl hangover from the Rams team? I don't think so. I think the, the biggest issue has just been the inconsistency, right? You're talking about a team that that just dominated the Falcons. The game was thirty to three in the final minutes, and yet this was the same team that could only muster seven points against the 49ers, and two weeks prior to that, they gave up three touchdowns in the first four possessions to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and yet started off 3-0 and with wins over the Saints and the Panthers and the Browns, so I think the biggest problem has just been the inconsistency. I don't I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of the Super Bowl hangover. We talked about it a lot on our side throughout the summer, and what's funny is if you go to Wikipedia, and I know it's Wikipedia, but if you, if you look at Wikipedia and look at Super Bowl hangover, it says, the Super Bowl hangover may mean one of three different things. It's like, okay, well, then it doesn't really mean anything. It means three different things. I think you're just looking at a team that's uh, had some big personnel 
changes, especially on the offensive line. And, uh, because, you know, when you go to the Super Bowl, you get a target on your back, and teams are, you know, making sure they play their best football against the Rams right now. And I think they're just trying to work through that, and uh, the results have been pretty inconsistent. Like you said, it's been up and down, and they're just going to have to find a way to get them some inconsistency once they get on the other side of the bye. Joe, this is John. Um, my, my main question right now is uh, I'm looking at like the Rams overall efficiency numbers and like th- there has been a regression on the offensive side of the ball. And, but as far as running the ball, like they're doing, pr- they're doing pretty well right there. They're 11th in rushing DVOA. They're 7th in uh, success rate. They're a top 11 unit for PFF. And looking at Todd Gurley right now, he's not exactly having the greatest of seasons. And I know he hasn't been all, all entirely healthy. But as far as what that offensive line is doing, like in terms of run blocking, is there really that big of a difference between how they are performing in the run game compared to pass protection? And how's that run game really been going, uh, mainly with Malcolm Brown almost being the better runner in that backfield? I'd say is that in 2018 they were fantastic if you look at whether you look at pro football focus or you look at some of the other advanced grades the, the line last year was probably the best line I've ever seen for the Rams um, so the idea that there's a drop off I don't think is necessarily you know surprising uh, especially because they lost the left guard in the center and had to replace them with two younger guys in Joseph Noteboom initially and then Brian Allen that hadn't gotten a lot of time. Noteboom has since uh, busted up his knee and he'll be gone for the season. And so the Rams have turned to David Edwards, a fifth-round rookie from the 2019 draft, to try to figure out if he can be uh, a mainstay on the line and get some stability. But I think the bigger issue... The problem with the run game hasn't necessarily been the quality, but maybe the quantity. And for a, for a team that you know featured Todd Gurley to, to such a significant degree for years, to pull back on that, I think they're trying to work through whether it's you know do do we preserve Gurley and try to use him late? Do we need to use Malcolm Brown more? Like you said, he's been really good, although he's been around for five years. He's been around ever since Todd Gurley joined the team, and he never got the opportunity that, for example, C.J. Anderson got at the end of last year. People might remember him from the NFC Championship and obviously the Super Bowl. Uh, or is it going to be Daryl Henderson, the third-round rookie that the Rams traded up to get, hadn't played much until the last two weeks, and has looked pretty explosive. A lot of Rams fans are excited to see more out of the rookie if they're not going to get more out of Todd Gurley, which seems to be the case. So uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the difference between the run blocking pass blocking hasn't been all that much different because overall the line just hasn't been very good. But they're working through some personnel changes, working on coaching up the youth, and I think it's a work in progress that's going to be more than a 2019 story, especially because somebody you guys know well, Andrew Whitworth, is all but certain to retire after this year. The Rams are going to be on the hunt for a new left tackle unless they promote somebody from within. But based on how this season has gone, I don't know that a lot of Rams fans would be excited about that possibility. Talking with Joe McAtee of SB Nation's Turf Show Times. Joe, you are the king of the segue, sir, because between the question my co-host just asked and uh, your mentioning of Andrew Whitworth, uh, that's where I was going next. Bengals fans have a major soft spot for him. Never really wanted to see him leave Cincinnati. Uh, Some believe that he was going to hit a major decline when he left Cincinnati. Regardless, it seems as if he hasn't. Probably not playing up to a similar level this year, but talk about his overall impact since his, his arrival in Los Angeles and uh, you know, maybe what he's been, what he's done for that offense. 
Yeah, I mean, he's been a galvanizing force, and it's the kind of, you know, free agency signing that that fans usually assume that every free agency signing is, that a guy's going to come in and play that position adequately and make sure that they're a, you know, positive force on that side of the ball. That's exactly what Andrew Whitworth's done. He's been uh, a great tackle for a team that, look, if you look at the Rams history over the last 15 years, ever since, for any Cincinnati fans that might be Ohio State fans, Orlando Pace, when he was our left tackle back during the greatest show on turf, after he got to the end of his career, the Rams struggled to find a successor. They tried Alex Barron coming out of Florida State. That didn't work. They tried uh, Jason Smith with the number two overall pick out of Baylor. That didn't work. We signed Jake Long. He was actually responsible for Sam Bradford re-injuring his ACL in 2014. And then, of course, the Rams recently went with Greg Robinson in uh, 2014, drafted him number two overall, and that also didn't work. So the Rams have been on the hunt, and this is, again, why that uh, disappearance of Whitworth after this year has a lot of fans concerned, is that the Rams spent 15, 16, 17 years looking for some stability at the position and simply could not get it. And no surprise that between 2004 and 2016, the Rams didn't have a single winning record. The offenses looked pretty horrible. They couldn't get right on the offensive line, and specifically a left tackle. They did with Andrew Woodworth. And, you know, the fact that his arrival synced up with Sean McVay's, I think you don't necessarily have to ask, was it the personnel changes? Was it McVay arriving? They both happened at the same time, and Andrew Whitworth was a big part of that. And even maybe more importantly, he's been a great steward in the community. I don't know if you guys remember the Monday night game between Los Angeles Kansas City last year that won the ESB for the best game, but it was happening while we had some pretty massive wildfires in South, uh, Southern California, and the Whitworths as a family were out in front of it, and he's been a really good steward off the field, and he's kind of the you know what you hope when you're signing a free agent. Rams fans have some similar concerns, like you said, that maybe he's so close to the end of his career that the football's going to tail off, but it hasn't really happened the last two years. We'll have to see if that happens over the rest of 2019, but to this point, he's been a great sign. He's probably the kind of guy that most teams wish they had on and off the field. Uh, Joe, I want to talk about the Jalen Ramsey trade. Obviously, the, the price tag was big to get him two first-round picks and a mid-round pick. Me personally, you know, when you're dealing with a player that good at a position that value, the price is always going to be steep. And I don't, I don't think, from my personal opinion, the price was not that steep. My whole thing was that maybe the Rams may not be the best team to do this considering how much they have invested right now in the quarterback and also their running back over the next couple of years. What are your thoughts on the Jalen Ramsey trade from the short term and also the long-term perspective? And do you think that the Rams were in the best position to make a deal like this? Yeah, I think they're going to have to play their way to find out whether they were or not, right? Because part of what we're saying is if this is a team that's kind of in win-now mode to give up so much value in your future to try to maximize your chances to win now like they did last year, but to do so again depends on winning now, right? One of the things we wrote last year was that, okay, the Rams traded all this stuff for Marcus Peters and Aqib Tlaib and signed in Dominick Sue, traded away a first-round pick for Brandon Cooks. It was kind of a Super Bowl or bust type attempt. Well, they went to the Super Bowl, right? And so the strategy kind of paid off because they were able to make it. So I think part of the, the, the process is going to be, is Jalen Ramsey going to give us Pro Bowl caliber and for seasons to come, if it's not Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl adjacent caliber football, he's going to have to for this trade to come anywhere close to making sense. I think the other issue is, and this is one where it gets a bit wonky when you talk about you know long-term payoff and dividend is the timeline. The Rams gave up a 2020 and 2021 first round pick. So even if the 
CBA holds and your 2021 first round pick gets a skip year option, you're talking about a pick that's going to be on that team through this year 2025. That is so far out in the future. I can't imagine what the Rams are going to let, or even the NFL or America. I have no idea what's going to be happening in 2025. That's so far off. Jalen Ramsey is only under contract through next season. So clearly the Rams are going to have to give him a contract extension. They're already on the books for about $100 million for six of their top guys when you look at Jared Goff, Todd Gurley, wow. Rob Havenstein, right tackle, Brandon Cook, some of these major deals that they've already given out, Aaron Donald, obviously. So they didn't have a ton of room to work with moving forward into next year. Now they're going to have to add to that with the Jalen Ramsey contract, and they don't have any first-round picks and haven't had one for three years under Sean McVay to restock this roster. They're pretty much going all in on the guys they've got, and the only way to really know whether or not it's been worth it is whatever results they get over the next three, four years with those guys that they put the contracts on. Talking with Joe McAtee at Turf Show Times, the SB Nation, Los Angeles Rams website. We'll be talking with him for just a couple more minutes here. Appreciate the time here, Joe. Um, I think I would be remiss if I – I guess I'm just Mr. Rams-Bengals relationship here, but I guess I would be remiss if I didn't uh, get the Rams side of the fence opinion on Zach Taylor. Obviously, he made a very big jump from offensive assistant – to head coach um, is how much of this was, you know what, this, this, this kid really was an integral part of what the Rams offense did last year and deserves this shot. And how much of it was kind of riding the coattails on Sean McVay and the NFL being enamored with McVay's effect on the Rams. Yeah. It's hard to tell because he was only with us for a season. Right. And so we, we didn't get it. There wasn't a big enough sample size to really get a sense of how much he was changing and how much was just, you know, Jerry Goff maturing and how much was McVay's play calling and how much was, for example, adding Brandon Cooks instead of Sammy Watkins. Um, I don't know. It's really hard to say. And, and again, for last year when we, we had the best line play that we've had, how much was a factor of the offensive line simply dominating some games and allowing the passing offensive flourish? It's hard to say. I think that the thing you'd look at, whether it's, Zach Taylor or uh, some of the other guys around the league, I think clearly this is a league that isn't necessarily tied to experience anymore, right? Where the, you're, you're seeing teams that are more willing to go after a younger, inexperienced guy than, than being afraid to fail with, and obviously I'm biased here, somebody like Jeff Fisher, right? I think there are a lot of teams that look at that kind of hire and say, yeah, there's no reason to swing for a comfortable single where you can swing for a home run. You might strike out, but it's worth it swinging because the alternative isn't much better anyway. And so I think that might be the Sean McVay effect, not necessarily what Zach Taylor might have learned from Sean McVay or offensive principles that he might bring over. I don't know that that's necessarily what teams are looking at, but more than a guy like Zach Taylor, depending on how he interviewed and depending on his vision for you guys and what he sold the team on, that there's no reason to be afraid to hire a guy that young and inexperienced versus to trying somebody that's tried and true that maybe isn't necessarily going to bring in any better results anyway. Well, I, I, are you are you going to London? Are you in London this week? I'm not, man. I thought about going, but I actually live in Dallas. I grew up here, moved back okay. here last year. 
and my mom's place got wrecked by the tornado. So while I was thinking about going out there after these last couple of days, I'm staying here and trying to clean up the neighborhood and we'll watch it. But it's going to be an interesting game. Are you guys going to London? Have you been to a London game before? No, I, you know, um, I'm actually a little more bitter about this game than most because I, this game was scheduled to be in LA and I live in Southern California. So I was, I was going to go, go to it, but uh, you know, then they moved it to London. So um, you know, and then my, my colleague, John, 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 were you thinking about going? I don't, uh, I, I'm one year out of college. I don't have that capital on me. <laughs> All right. So, uh, no on our end, but, uh, we do know a lot of our Bengals brethren that are out there. Um, what, what we had a question in our YouTube chat. What are some thoughts from you as we close up here? What, what are some thoughts from you in terms of keys to this game and, uh, what the Rams are looking to achieve against a team that's been winless um, is it just get up early and get on them early and, and you know, kind of keep on them? Or is there specific things they're looking to exploit? What do you think? Yeah, it's not as much get up on them early. That hasn't been the way that teams uh, that have been struggling that the Rams have taken advantage of have played out, whether it's Arizona last year or obviously Atlanta last week or uh, the Colts back in 2017. When the Rams have had these kind of games, it's been more methodical and been, you know, more about just – being uh, disciplined defensively and getting three and outs and then just putting up points to the point that, you know, a, a field goal here, a touchdown here, two field goals there, and all of a sudden it's 16 to nothing late in the second. And you, you can see the team starting to get the pressure of being down like that, and they start making mistakes. And that's been really the MO for the Rams. It hasn't been what the Buccaneers did to us back in week four where, you know, you score three touchdowns in the first four possessions and you throw out the game plan because nobody expected that to happen. That hasn't really been the way the Rams play these games. If we're looking at keys for the game, obviously number one's going to be the Rams' offensive line. They've been all over the place, and when they've been bad, they've been really, really bad. And obviously that makes it hard to run any kind of offense, let alone one that's already handicapping Todd Gurley by limiting his carries. And uh, For all the skills that Jerry Goff has in his bag, he struggled against pressure more so than his peers and to a larger degree than his peers. So I look at the offensive line against our defensive front first, uh, obviously depending on what the injury report holds because I saw that earlier today. Uh, number two, the other key would be the Rams secondary as a whole. They've had so many changes. The keep to leads on IR. Yeah. Marcus Peters is now a Baltimore Raven, but Jalen Ramsey's in. Uh, we might have another injury with Troy Hill, who's actually the primary backup and would have started across from Ramsey. So we'll have to see if he's able to go. He didn't practice today. Um, and then you've got some new faces at the back with Taylor Rapp, a rookie who's kind of an overhang safety role, and Marky Christian, who's had to come in for John Johnson, the Pro Bowl caliber safety who's on injured reserve. Got some new names back there, and seeing how they all work together along with Eric Weddle, who's, you know, end of a Hall of Fame career. It's going to be interesting to see how these guys gel now that it looks like this is going to be the personnel base for the next month or so. Um, going to be interesting to see those guys, but it's a really talented unit, and when you got Aaron Donald at the front, you're getting enough pressure on a consistent basis, and the secondary plus Aaron Donald has been good enough to limit some really good offenses. And uh, if they can do that again on Sunday, I think it's going to be difficult for you guys to move the ball, which has been the case for some teams. And that's been really the way the Rams put the screws on it. Yeah. Troy Hill, another former Bengal. Um, yeah. Uh, quick, quickly, a, a got a prediction, score prediction or anything? I'll go with something similar to last week, if only because the Rams, because the Rams lost those three in a row, they don't have the opportunity to drop any more games because they're going to lose some games to some really good teams when they come out of the bye. They've got first Pittsburgh, but then they got Chicago and Baltimore. They've got rematch.
matches against Seattle and San Francisco. They got to travel to Dallas late in the season. I think we're at the point where the coaches have put it on these guys and maybe some of the leaders in the locker room, guys like Whitworth and Eric Weddle, and maybe to a degree Aaron Donald, that say, look, you can't get blindsided the way we did against Tampa Bay. That's just not acceptable. They've got to come out and they've got to be cleaner the way they were against Atlanta in the first half. I'd expect that. Uh, but, you know, like I said, the story of the Rams is inconsistency over the course of 2019. I wouldn't be surprised if we get into a shootout in the first half that you guys are feeling really good about it. But if I had to go with a prediction, I'd go with something like 35-17 maybe with a late touchdown for you guys. But uh, honestly, nothing would surprise me about the 2019 Rams. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's 35-17 the other direction. Good stuff, Joe. How can how can our listeners uh, check out your stuff, get in touch with you, or, or follow you on social media, all that good stuff? Yeah, just hit us up on Tershow Times, at Tershow Times on Twitter, Tershow Times on Instagram. We're not doing TikTok yet. We're too, we're old men. Neither are we're nowhere, we're nowhere cool enough to do Twitch yet, so we'll get there one day. But right now, it's just uh, the, on the site, Twitter, Instagram. That's as cool as we get. Cool. Well, uh to echo some some of our listeners' sentiments, take care of your mom and that situation down there. Hope all's well, man, and uh, enjoy this weekend. Yeah, for sure. Thanks yeah, for the yeah. time, bud. Joe McAtee from Turf Show Times and that interview. Uh, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, our interviews are brought to you by a specific sponsor, Casa Bell Real Estate. Go to casabellrealtygroup.com for your Southern California real estate needs information listings, all that good stuff. Check out com. They are the ones who sponsored that interview. Good stuff from good stuff from uh, Joe there. Very informative. And uh, it's been an interesting year for the Rams. Very roller coastery, right? Mm-hmm. Tershow Ter- Ter- Times is an elite SB Nation website. Elite name as well. Great name. It is a great. It is a great. <laughs> it is a great name. Uh, we are... Uh, we're going to get out of here. We've gone a little long. Um, any final thoughts, Sean? I know we tried to, I wanted to give you a little time to maybe clear, clear some things up. I don't know if you want to use this opportunity for that. You've, uh, you've caught some flack this week, my friend, on a number of different fronts. Um, I don't know. I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you, if you want to talk about that, you, you're more than welcome to. Otherwise, if you've got some final thoughts about the game or anything else, go for it. Yes, yeah, the time where you can, I guess, close out of that uh, podcast application if you want. But I'll just make this brief. Uh, I, I got into a discussion earlier this week about the Bengals and the state of the franchise and how they can get better. And essentially, the conversation, you know, twisted or shifted towards basically what would happen if the Bengals move and would we be okay with that? And my overall thought right now is that here, hold on a second. There's a picture of me as about a 13 year old. At Bengals training camp. That's actually Roy Williams in the background. These are my two friends, who childhood friends of mine, who got me into liking the Bengals from a very early age. I'm a Bengals fan, or was a diehard Bengals fan, a lot like you guys. But it's just that over the years, I've just you know developed into more of a, of a conscious, not blind and deaf person who worships the organization. So when I contemplate the fact of if the Bengals were to get better by moving the organization outside of Cincinnati, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world. That's essentially what the conversation basically shifted to. And there was this big Bengals fan who basically painted me as an enemy of the city or an enemy of the Bengals or whatever. So my whole thing is that, you know, when discussing with, with people who are just so devoted to the organization and who are basically too far gone into their values about this organization and this and this team in general, it's it's not exactly the, the, the most productive conversation that you can have. 
And it's all very moot because the Bengals are here for, I think, until 2026 when that stadium uh, deal is going for. And as long as the Browns and the Blackburns own the team, I don't think the team is moving anywhere. But it's all about progress, man. It's all about making the, the, the sport better. And I think the sport is better with more competent franchises. And I would hope that the Bengals once again become competent in the city of Cincinnati. But in general, from my perspective, if you know they happen to move and they happen to get better outside of Cincinnati, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world for the for the team or the city. That's essentially what that amounted to, but it's it's no big deal. It, it's all moot, anyways. Well, I think I think we all would love to see the Bengals stay in Cincinnati, succeed. Um, you know, I, the entire thing. I, I mean, I put up a post that was that centered around the post game reactions of this week. That I mean, they're they are not a well run business. They're not no. a well-run business, and unfortunately, that it's not just wins and losses, guys. I mean, it's not just the wins and losses. It permeates through an organization, and employees get disgruntled. That's why you have guys coming out years later talking about the jockstrap stuff. That's why you you have guys coming out and agents talking about how difficult it is to have. I mean, and granted, we could go on a whole podcast episode about this, but agents talking about how it's one of the worst franchises to deal with in terms of contract negotiations. I mean, at some point, you got you got to call a spade a spade, and you got you got to say, look, I mean, these are the realities that you deal with with this team, and it's no surprise that these frustrating organizational practices are directly correlating to the lack of success on the field. Um, and, and you have the way they operate, you have guys, your best players, even if they're getting paid very well, they want out. They don't want to, they don't want to play for this team anymore. And it, it happened with, to a lesser degree, Chad Johnson, but it happened with Carson Palmer. It happened with Carl Pickens. It happened with Corey Dillon. They got sick of it. Uh, it happened with Takeo Spikes. Um, you can go back to Lamar Parrish. He didn't like things when Paul Brown was running the franchise. So when these seasons pop, when they're 11 and five and they're winning division titles, it's easy to sit here and be like, ah, oh, you know, they're, they're, you know, up there with the big boys. But when these seasons crop up and now we're on the fourth, the precipice of the fourth losing season in a row here with a new coaching staff, it's easy to, it's easy to point out the flaws. And, you know, I understand that some of these, and I, I, some of the guys I saw you interacting with, I I've met them. I met them in Seattle. They're great, uh, great people. And I, you know, and I understand that they want that team there and they want to root for the team and they want to see it successful and they root for them win or lose. I think we all do that. But the problem is, is the losing gets old. Um, the losing gets old the way they lose and their lack of really doing cutting of corners, if you will, or however you want to word it, it just, it maddens people. And uh, I think I don't want to speak for you in saying that, but I'm sure that that's part of what where your argument's coming from. Essentially, it was if if this is, if things happen to the point where the Bengals need to change things, it would basically lead to a point where the NFL might force their hand to basically leave the city of Cincinnati. And if they leave the city of Cincinnati, the city of Cincinnati is probably not going to get another NFL franchise. I don't want it to come to that because I think a lot of people would be upset and it would change the city drastically. And I know the Bengals have done things to spark the city of Cincinnati and, and rebuild that riverfront area. But at the end of the day, it's football. It's a game. It, it, it's a team. People will get over it. It's not the worst thing in the world if it happens. I don't want it to happen. I, I would want the best thing to happen for the game that I love covering and I love watching. That's basically all I have to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, 
it's an exhausting topic and unfortunately one that, um, you know, it, it, it comes up in seasons like this. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, at the beginning of the show, unfortunately it turns into a, you know, kill the messenger situation. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's what happens when frustrations are kind of misplaced and whatever, but we're going to keep giving you our opinions. We're going to keep giving you this show. We're going to keep giving you stuff on cincyjungle.com. So keep it there. And, as for this show, get it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to get the videos, both of our, our live podcasts and all of that. Um, I do want to, again, remind everybody that we're going to do a listener questions episode on Friday afternoon, so please join us for that. We will also be joined briefly by Bengals UK, the Bengals uh, UK account. They're going to be talking about some sights and sounds and everything from London, which should be pretty cool, uh, I think the representative from them will be calling us from a London pub, which would be, uh, which is pretty cool. So um, check that out. We, uh, we think it's going to be a lot of fun. We appreciate all the support. We're running long. John, thanks for everything, bud. Have a good, uh, good rest of the week. And we'll talk Friday, I guess. Yeah. Happy Halloween to you, man. Yeah. <laughs> thanks buddy. See you everybody. Uh-huh.